What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. Today, I have a very special guest, somebody who I've been following in the fitness industry and honestly have looked up to for a really long time, at least the past 10 years, uh, my friend Stan Efferding. Stan is a world-class bodybuilder and powerlifter. He's actually known for being the world's strongest bodybuilder, which is a really, really cool title to hold. He's worked with a ton of professional athletes to help them optimize their performance through nutrition and training. He's worked with one of my favorite athletes, Brian Shaw, who is four times world's strongest man, and he's popularized his personal nutritional intervention, which he titled or called the vertical diet, which is what we're going to talk about um, for the majority of this podcast episode. Stan, thank you so much for being here, my man. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, brother. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Seriously, I, I really appreciate it. Um, so I've been following you for a long time, man. I used to watch your videos squatting with Mike O'Hearn, squatting with Larry Wheels. Um, that's kind of how I started watching uh, your stuff, honestly. And then I started watching your like 10-minute uh, walks and giving some talks there. And I, I was really impressed by... Um, your level of knowledge. I think that's something that a lot of people in the fitness industry probably look up to you for because there's not many really jacked dudes like you that have a ton of knowledge when it comes to nutrition and training as well. Um, I'd love to start the conversation by knowing a little bit more about you, your background and how you got into bodybuilding and powerlifting in the first place. Yeah, it's a skinny kid story. 98 pounds wrestling in high school, 106 as a junior, 115 as a senior. Uh, I got a college uh, scholarship for soccer. I was only 135 pounds as an 18-year-old freshman in college, and my coach told me to go lift weights. And so I went to the gym for the first time with any amount of consistency, and I just absolutely fell in love with it, everything about it. The way it felt, the, the soreness afterwards, the measurability, you know, the progressive nature of it, everything that, yeah. uh, that you experienced. I got on a Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia Bodybuilding, and I uh, started doing, you know, training two hours a day, seven days a week, like most people do and following the diet from the guy that worked behind the counter at gold's gym, who was getting ready for a bodybuilding show, which at the time was uh, tuna fish and rice cakes. And so obviously with all that overtraining and under eating, I didn't make a lot of progress the first two years. And I ended up competing in uh, my first bodybuilding show as 21 years old. And I was, uh, uh, 158 pounds. Uh, so I think it was 20 years old. Yeah. In 1988, 158 pounds. And so I wasn't a, a fast gainer by any stretch of the imagination. My pops was a 155 pound tennis player in college. So, uh, I wasn't uh, borrowing from any, any significant genetic benefits. And so uh, I, I just fell in love with it. I, I got a science degree, my bachelor's was in psychology, uh, did some post-grad work in exercise science, spent two years doing all the dissecting cadavers and physiology and chemistry and uh, kinesiology and all those, you know, I just, I got fascinated with the science of, uh, you know, health and fitness and training and nutrition. And so I was in the science library every night until they kicked me out at midnight, scrolling through microfiche, which will date me because uh, that's similar to uh, someone whose grandfather had a, uh, an eight track tape player in their pickup truck. <laughs> we've come a long way we didn't have the internet back then and I, I yeah. i've been reading studies for a long long time and uh you know i'm just uh and then i became a high school soccer coach and then i started training the university of oregon track and football players for a number of years there in the early through mid 90s 
uh, owned a few gyms, worked at gyms, uh, trained people for you know 30 years now. It's what I did to get by in college in addition to doing construction. Um, and, I, you know, and eventually was able to have some success in competing, bodybuilding and powerlifting, back and forth. Uh, I say this and people initially uh, think I'm exaggerating, but it's conservative to say that over the last 30 years, I've gained and lost well over a thousand pounds. Yeah. Bulking up to over 300 pounds to power lift and dieting down to single digit body fat to bodybuild. And then just doing that back and forth and back and forth. I would pursue one, then the other. And then uh, all throughout my career, I had some, uh, some good success. And uh, as I came back into competitive bodybuilding in my late thirties, working with Flex Wheeler and uh, also in powerlifting, working with Mark Bell, now, those are some of the videos that, that you're mentioning back in uh, 2009 and 10, 11, 12, all those years we were YouTubing and uh, got a lot of exposure in the magazines, of course, at that time. The whole world's strongest bodybuilder shtick was uh, popular at the time with Johnny Jackson. And so I really benefited from, uh, you know, the growth of social media and kind of that hybrid of, of being kind of a lean power lifter or a strong bodybuilder. Um and I, I took that, that I've always taken the responsibility uh, seriously uh, to, you know, to give out good information to my audience and to uh, respect the fact that I am an influencer and people listen to the things I have to say. So not to say I've been right about everything. I, I've had my own evolution over the years and things that, that you know, I, I once believed. I think we've all been there. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe some nuance along the way. And we're happy to talk about some of that today. But uh some years ago, I saw a trend in the industry, and I noticed that the academics, particularly Lane, because uh, I've been following him for 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, and, and guys like him, uh, people who are very well-credentialed academically, PhDs, et cetera, who also lift and have the same degree of passion and competitive fervor and have devoted all of their time and energy and knowledge into furthering their sports performance and I kind of saw this trend as social media was growing that a lot of the gurus, a lot of the people who just kind of basically made shit up uh, and uh, weren't very science-based, were going to get exposed uh, by this, this, yeah. uh, this media. And so some five, six years ago, I went back to school. I took some courses, enrolled in UNLV, got a CSCS with the NSCA, uh, and then partnered with uh, – I realized that, that even with all of the schooling that I was attempting – considering you know how busy I was raising kids and, and running companies, that uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to capture all of the knowledge that I desired. And so I started looking for resources outside of myself and compiling those. Um, and then I partnered with Dr. Damon McCune, who's a PhD in exercise phys. He's an RDN and an LD. He was director of dietetics for UNLV. And we sat down and spent, uh, and we spent hundreds of hours together. He lived here in town. We trained together. We we met and talked and we uh, basically took everything from the vertical diet that I had been giving to my clients over the years, which at the time wasn't even called the vertical diet. It was just a, uh, you know, it was just a compilation of everything I had learned and all the things I wanted them to implement, uh, you know, from sleep to hydration, to training, to nutrition, to digestion, to just every question anybody's ever asked me as a personal trainer and a coach that I continue to repeat myself over and over and over again. Yeah. I wanted them to have a, a resource and a, I tried to make it as simplified as possible. And then Damon added uh, a lot of, uh, you know, over 500 references to 
articles and videos and peer review published research so that, uh, you know, and I'm still growing. Uh, you know, I know that's kind of a quick 30-year uh, overview, but that, yeah. that's what got me to where I was, how passionate I am about it, and what, what I'm doing currently, which is just, uh, I'm just coaching, and I'm coaching a lot of professional athletes, sure, that's what I'm known for, uh, but the vast majority of our clients are just simply weight loss clients, particularly people as they get into their 40s, 50s, and 60s and start to have some challenges uh, yeah. health-wise. And uh, that's that's most of what I do. And I, I kind of, uh, I would say I wear it as a badge of honor when I work with a great athlete, but they're the easiest people to train. They're the most disciplined, they're the most genetically uh, gifted. Uh, and But, you know, the the ones that are the most rewarding is the people whose lives are changed uh, when they can comply with some some pretty simple, sensible, and sustainable recommendations uh, to make you know just to to lose weight and feel great and improve their sleep and their general health and certainly their lifespan and health span. Yeah, man, dude, I have so many thoughts about everything you just mentioned there. So similar to you, um, I guess I'm still kind of a skinny dude, but I was a really skinny dude back in high school i used to wrestle as well uh i'm six five so i'm really tall and i used to wrestle at 160 so yeah. i was a stick um yeah. and i got into lifting because both of my parents were into lifting thankfully and i would see them lifting and i was like oh i want to do that and uh yeah i made a ton of mistakes i think we can all agree that anybody who is like in the fitness industry for maybe over 10 years has been humbled by a lot of the things that they used to think were true. Right. And I definitely want to yeah. touch on a couple of those here today. Um, but yeah, I, I saw that you recently posted, I think it was your first bodybuilding show. Right. And you were like 160, yeah. 150 ish around there. 158. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's crazy, man. I'm, I'm up to close to two. So this is the first time I've committed to actually gaining substantial weight because one of the mistakes yeah. I always make is gain 10 or 15 pounds, want to lose them to stay lean, right? Yeah. And so I'm up to close to 230 now, and I want to push 240, maybe 245. Um, it's just hard, man, when you start putting on body fat, it feels uncomfortable. But, you know, it's one of the things I really talk to uh, my clients about, which I want to transition here into the first real question I want to ask you is because I work with a lot of general population people as well, right? And one of the things I really try to emphasize, which I feel the the culture in the fitness industry has changed toward this a little bit, but is really focusing on building muscle, right? Uh, in particular with like middle-aged or even older people who haven't really focused on resistance training either. And the importance of dedicating a period of time to actually building your bodily uh, capacities up, right? Building muscle, eating sufficient food so that you have that base of muscle. So then it's easier to maintain a healthy body composition, Right. And I think you and I have a very similar approach where with most most of my clients, what I really focus on is a healthy lifestyle, healthy habits uh, based approach. Right. But at the end of the day, people want to get jacked and look muscular. Right. So the first thing I really wanted to ask you is um, with all of your years of experience working with clients, what do you see are really some of the uh, muscle building and strength focused mistakes that people make that if they really focus on these small little uh, things and improve them, it could have probably a pretty big difference in the results they're getting from their training. And this could be training tips or even nutritional tips as well. Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest mistakes is that people will go into a significant caloric deficit while trying to build muscle. And that's a difficult path to take. Uh, maybe a newbie who has a significant amount of weight to lose can see a recomposition but anybody with a modest amount of lifting experience, uh, 
who only has, you know, a, a minor amount of say body fat to lose, it's going to have a really hard time adding muscle. And it, it seems like uh, a waste of time. Mm-hmm. I also try and uh, people like to see progress in some way, some metric. Yeah. Weight loss people like to get on the scale and they like yeah. to see that the scale going down. Uh, and people that are bodybuilding, they like to see themselves getting bigger, but that takes longer. Yep. Uh, and it's, it's a little less measurable because it's just, it's somewhat subjective. You just look in the mirror, maybe you can run a tape on your waist or thighs, but the, those are slow gains. I like to tie, uh, tie it to strength yeah. for, a, for a number of reasons. One, because it's, it's a bit of a hook. If somebody lifts something heavy, mm-hmm. uh, then they're like, oh, I could do five more pounds. And, and we know that initially a lot of that is neural adaptation. Yes. We know just from practicing the exercise, uh, their body's going to get a little better at it and they're going to increase the load pretty rapidly. Yeah. And I, I, I use that to my advantage. I don't sit there and tell them, oh, it's just neural adaptation. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I say, hey, you're getting stronger and hey, let's add five pounds. Uh, so what I try and do is, is avoid less rewarding. Uh, and as I had mentioned, when I was younger, I, I would, uh, I would overtrain and undereat. And so I'm, and, and another thing about, uh, you know, I said, I don't want to restrict calories, but I also don't want to get them started on some really aggressive, uh, training program that it's hard to recover from, uh, depending on their level of experience, of course, you're going to get a lot of DOMS, particularly if it's exercises that are a novel stimulus. And so, uh, and a, a lot of clients like to do a lot of different things. Uh, and, and I kind of try and stick to a few basic movements and get them stronger on those. So I guess to summarize it, I would say that I would certainly increase their protein to at least 1.6 grams per pound. And I guess that's, there's some variability there depending on how much weight their extra weight they're carrying body weight, body fat, but Generally speaking, I'll try and get them to increase their protein, which provides a host of benefits, of course, as you know, in terms of satiety and um, uh, thermic effect of food and uh, those kinds of benefits. And then obviously building and, and repairing and maintaining muscle tissue. Uh, but the training program, I'm really focused on getting them to, to lift something that is measurable and progressible. Uh, it doesn't have to be a, a, you know one of the big three. It doesn't have to be a squat bench or deadlift. Sometimes for beginners, I find those exercises uh, maybe to be a little more um, uh, complicated teaching a a squat. So it's a little harder to progress maybe because there's a skill component to it. Um, But generally speaking, I want to get them to do some sort of push, pull and legs that I can measure and progress over time and just show them they're getting stronger. And you can build, as we know, you can get hypertrophy from sets of five just as well as sets of 20 if we keep them, yeah. you know, the intensity level significant. It gives them a rep or two of failure. And so I choose the fives. Uh, I, I'm just, if I bring somebody to the gym and I, and I do a bunch of work, I don't know how to describe this, whether it's junk volume um, or whether it's just uh, exercise instead of training, the difference between the two being the training is measurable, progressible, and exercise is Hey, you, uh, you sweat and you breathed hard. Yeah. Uh, but does it force an adaptation that's going to give them, you know, some sort of, uh, I think, uh, we say measurable, you know, identifiable progress so that they can feel as though that the energy they're investing into this pursuit is, is returning some sort of reward for them. 
So, and, and the best way to measure that initially is strength. And so I, I try and get them more protein and get them stronger right out of the gate uh, and, and get them to focus less on the scale. I might tape the waist just so they can, because the scale might not move. They might lose fat and gain muscle and be the same weight, uh, which I see happen quite often. Uh, and they might get discouraged if the scale is the only metric. And so I will, I'll do progress pictures, but sometimes those are a little hard to see, you know, week to week, but you can certainly see them in, in 30 or 90 days for sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll tape the waist and see if I can get a half inch or an inch off the waist. And uh, at least we'll have a metric to go to uh, in addition to strength to show them that they're making progress. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that those are probably the two biggest mistakes I've seen with clients in particular who want to build muscle as well, right? Like definitely under eating is a big issue. And I think, and this is something I've seen with a number of clients you probably have as well. It's like people are uh, resistant uh, to eat more, right? But then eventually when they do trust you and perhaps you start to increase their caloric recommendation and they start to eat more, their body weight doesn't even change or they might actually even slightly decrease weight because their energy expenditure might increase accordingly because they feel better, they move more throughout the day, their performance in the gym is better, all of which contributes to better body composition, right? And I think one of the things that you mentioned that's really powerful is really focusing on the basics, the fundamentals. It sucks, man, because from a coaching perspective, from like a marketing perspective, the stuff that actually works is like not that sexy. It doesn't sell that well. Right. I'll work with clients, you know, we'll do we'll do a, a, a well-structured training plan. And after four to six weeks, they're like, when are we changing this? And I'm like, I know. you know, we're not, we're not changing it. <laughs> and the question is like, if it's working, why change it? Right. Which I'm sure you've had that conversation a number of times as well. Um, it's just interesting that you mentioned uh, focusing on strength. And I agree with you. I, I think focusing specifically on like metrics, right? Seeing if you're using more weight, doing more reps mm -hmm. is really great because it gives immediate feedback, as you mentioned. Yeah. Like, seeing muscle growth mm -hmm. takes time, right? And one thing I wanted to ask you personally, because in the like bodybuilding literature and research and muscle growth literature, um, it's quite obvious that like higher volumes are beneficial for muscle growth, right? And volume I know is, is typically thought about as like weight times reps, which I think is not a good definition. I think the best definition is probably just like number of hard sets, because like you mentioned, all rep ranges are pretty effective, right? But even then, like a ton of people really just go towards the higher rep stuff, right? I, like you, really enjoy lifting heavy weights, even in like the three to six rep range. And it's just because I started lifting in a powerlifting gym. So it's what I saw and I really enjoyed. But in your personal experience, do you think there was a lot of carryover in terms of having dedicated periods of time where you really focused on maximizing your strength in terms of potentiating muscle growth afterwards? Yeah, although... In the five rep range, yes, because you're getting the benefit of both. I did not see that singles uh, were yeah. contributed very much to my bodybuilding pursuit. And as a matter of fact, when I started training with Flex Wheeler in 2008 and 2009, he stopped letting me do the heavy squat deadlift bench press because mm. he noticed I was somewhat overdeveloped in muscles that I utilized most in those exercises. Yeah. And I was somewhat underdeveloped in muscles that might lend themselves better to uh, the aesthetics of a bodybuilding competition. Yeah. And so, like, for instance, I had a huge butt and spinal erectors from squatting because I didn't do a lot of knee band. I did a lot of hip uh, yeah. loaded, uh, what uh, Ripito would, would call hip drive. Yeah, yeah. And so he wouldn't let me squat and he would make me use a lot more knee angle and a lot more 
lengthened quad position, just more range of motion, I guess we could say. But the range of motion was at the knee instead of the hip uh, for me because I had developed a, a lot of size in, in the hips and glutes. Um, and so I, I don't want to get too deep into the, the weeds, but um, I do find that, that the heavier training, although it can be a little more fatiguing, uh, but by the same notion, you just don't have to do as much volume. Yeah. Uh, and when you're talking about general population, you're talking about people who don't have as much time and it might not necessarily be their priority. They want to get the biggest ROI. Uh, and so I tell them that, you know, about the most sets you really, I don't hate, hate to use the word need to do, but probably the most benefit you'll get probably is six, maybe six sets, two exercises, uh, three sets yeah. of each. And when you start to get north of that, and we see that in Schoenfeld's research, and you're well aware of it, that you get significantly diminished returns. And so I guess what you said is, is when people come back and say, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Uh, it seems like 90% of what we do now is to avoid people from getting distracted and thinking that there's some easier way or some better way. Uh, I call it the shiny object syndrome. Every time somebody watches Instagram and they go like, and then they come ask you about something they saw on Instagram. And now you're spending the majority of your time without trying to attack anybody else's program, yeah. uh, focusing on why this might be optimal for them. And, and, it, and that's going to take some feedback too. I'm not suggesting there's one best program. Uh, you, yeah. you have to have, you know, kind of a Q and a with your clients and find out when they can train, how long they can train, what they're, priorities are. And again, they conflate exercise with training. So they might want to do a whole bunch of more reps and a whole bunch of more sets. They might want to sweat some more uh, and they'll think that they're going to get a better result out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe conflating building muscle with losing fat and they're not the same thing. And so you got to kind of educate them to focus. If you want to lose fat, let's focus on your diet. And if you want to gain muscle, let's use the evidence-based guidelines to for gaining muscle and that's not necessarily running all over the gym doing an exercise every 30 seconds uh you know just because you're sweating and breathing hard doesn't mean you got a better stimulus for muscle growth so it's it's hard to get people to to understand that or to accept that yeah i think uh one of the things that people really struggle to learn too and i think this is because it's skill that just takes time to develop is training with appropriate intensity right yeah it's it's hard to learn and usually takes a couple of months to really get there but i'm similar to you uh or agree with you what you just said in terms of doing five or six sets per body part for one session um and i really enjoy spreading that out throughout the week so uh i actually train five times per week and i'll do either one week is three upper body two lower body or the other way around three lower body two upper body and when i train a body part three times it's really just five sets for that day and yeah. so I try to do something similar with my clients in terms of teaching them how to rest sufficiently and really push the intensity because that's that's one of the most important things for progress, right? Really pushing the intensity. And so when I prescribe a workout that's maybe 12 to 14 sets total for the workout, and they're like, this is too little. Uh, this took me 20 minutes. I'm like, this should take you at least 60 minutes if you're resting sufficiently and pushing the intensity, right? Um, maybe you can touch on that, uh, for a little bit there, because that's something that I've struggled with with every new client. You just hit on something that's huge. Uh, a few points there. One, uh, you know, especially when I was training a lot of female clients, the mm -hmm. first thing they do when they would get under an exercise that you would, you would give them 
they would say, how many reps? Mm-hmm. And th- there is no answer to that question, really. Yeah. I, and my answer is always all the reps. And I don't make very many friends saying that because you're right. It's, it's the intensity. I, I'll, I'll, as soon as I see your face, you know, strain mm-hmm. or the speed of the bar uh, slow down, I'll know we're, we're pretty close. That's probably sufficient. But until that time, I can't count. And, uh, you know, as you get to work with the client repeatedly, you'll understand what load is sufficient so that they reach that level of intensity in the rep range you'd like them to train. And I generally tend to, to like to see the bulk of those in that five rep range. Uh, and, but, you know, at the same time, uh, the rest periods is huge. And I, I run into that with professional athletes a lot, particularly the UFC fighters that I, that I work with at the fight ready camp or with John Jones. Um, uh, that was with uh, uh, Henry Cejudo down in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, and a bunch of the fighters down there. Man, they they tend to want to get some conditioning benefit from their weight training, and it, it's, yeah. it's two completely different things. And so they'll want to shorten the rest periods to thirty seconds. And of course, the amount of sets and reps that they can do, the amount of reps they could do with the same weight on each subsequent set, starts to decline rapidly. And yes. it's not the optimal stimulus. So the hardest, one of the hardest things I do is get people to look at a clock or set a timer on their phone and not go too fast. And that that's the best stimulus for weight training. And if they don't, if they're not sweating and breathing heavy, they just don't feel like they're getting a good workout. So rest periods is, is what I'm uh, constantly reiterating to people on a big squat set. That might be four minutes, you know, and maybe on a set of biceps or triceps, it might be 90 seconds. Uh, but I guess the way to measure it is that each subsequent set should be pretty close to the same amount of weight for a similar number of reps. Maybe you lose one, but you shouldn't lose five reps out of that set. And so that's, that's what I focus on is how strong they can stay for how long throughout that workout. And then understanding, like you said, that once you get, you know, beyond a certain number of sets, you're probably not going to get any additional benefit and just end up creating more fatigue and might not recover fast enough. And so I do the same thing. I split up the workouts to work every body part at least twice a week. And they get 10 to 20 sets per body part per week yeah. on the lower end for the larger movements or larger muscles on the higher end, maybe for the smaller muscles. But I give credit to uh, biceps for a chin up. I'm not adding, you know, six more sets of biceps after rows and chin ups. I might only add three because I'm getting some of the bicep benefit from the chin up. I'm getting some of the tricep benefit from some of the, the dips and the benches. And so yeah. I don't need a, a full arm workout on top of the, the yeah. muscles that were just used in a multi-joint. Uh, movement so yeah that's uh one of the questions i get from all my male clients is like where's arm day i'm like there's no arm day why you don't need an arm day we can just do a little right. bit of eyes and tries towards the end i mean th- that's not to say that nobody should do an arm day right obviously there are specific situations in which some people need to bring up lagging body parts but i'd say for the general population you don't need to be doing an arm day and yeah i i say the same thing with rest periods for main compound movements i usually recommend at least three minutes right and you said a heavy squat set, it's maybe I'm in, maybe I'm in shitty shape, but it takes me like five or six minutes to recover for the next set, man. And that's, you know, the, that intensity component, because clients ask, they're like, man, what do I do for three minutes? It's such a long period of time. It's like, if you're pushing the intensity, you'll be breathing hard for three, four minutes, like three minutes goes by like this when you're training intensely. It's really not that long of a period of time at all. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've done a heavy set of squats. You walk away from the bar, particularly if it's high rep. For a while there, I was doing some 20s. 
Uh, and I do like to train in all the rep ranges to get the benefit of, of hitting all the muscle fibers. And I'll just prioritize the bulk of my workout in a particular rep range, depending on what I'm working on at the time. But I'll get some heavy fives and I'll get a finish with an AM rep of 20. And sometimes I was uh, periods throughout my training career, I would do sets of 20s. And you get done with a set of 20 and you rack the bar and then you get out and you start walking around about five or 10 seconds after you rack the bar, that wave hits you. Yeah. Where you're just, you can't even breathe. And I'm looking around in a panic and I'm <clears throat> sucking yeah, wind, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. really hard. And in that moment, for like the next minute or two, you're done. You're like, I'm not doing another set. It, it, it's overwhelming, you know, if you're training with that level of intensity. But you give it three or four minutes and you start to come around and you might be willing to jump under and give it another try. Not always, but uh, so, like you say, it should be hard enough. Uh, if people are concerned about getting their heart rate up, you're probably not lifting with enough intensity because on most multi-joint movements, particularly any lower body movement, if you're lifting to within a rep or two of failure, uh, your heart rate's going to be skyrocketing. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's a really good point too, in terms of like, how do I know if I'm training intensely enough? I really like heart, heart rate is a great point because yeah, your heart rate will be significantly elevated thing is there's a difference between something feeling hard and then like actually getting near failure and something you mentioned a, a couple of, of minutes ago was uh the velocity right i ask all of my clients to send me videos and sometimes they're like this is really hard and i understand but if we look at that last rep and compare it to your first rep it looks the same right so it's like yeah. in terms of talk, talking about rir or reps in reserve it looks like you probably still have another eight or nine reps at least right and that's definitely a skill that takes time to learn um, yeah. Okay, so transitioning from the training stuff, I really want to talk about the nutrition side of stuff because that's where I really started following you and reading more of your stuff and starting to learn about the vertical diet as well. As the inventor of the vertical diet, could you give us a quick rundown of the basic principles of what is the vertical diet and then the other components that you really focus on as well besides just diet like sleep and stress management, for example? Yeah, just talking specifically about food, because again, the vertical diet's a pretty you know, broad range of all yes. the, the different things I want people to do. Um, you know, I, I just put it in a high three of most important to least important. Obviously, calories are king. If you want to gain weight, you got to be in a surplus. You want to lose weight, you got to be in a deficit. You know, next, I jump onto the macros and protein being the most important of those and then having a balance. I've never been extreme in any direction with respect to carbs or fats, although I have a preference towards particularly for people who are exercising, keeping fats real and, and pushing carbohydrates to fuel anaerobic uh, activity. That may change a little depending on somebody's activity level. Uh, and then micronutrients is next on the list. And uh, I just make sure that the, the foods that I initially choose are, are pretty uh, micronutrient dense. Um, you know, I use a variety of sources. Say with proteins, I like to see a little dairy, a little egg, a little red meat, a little fish, you know, I like to get a variety of sources, certainly if not every day, but uh, throughout the week. And that provides an enormous amount of the micronutrients that we're trying to satisfy. And then when I start talking about carbohydrate, and usually the fats are in those sources of proteins, be it egg or dairy or fish. And then when I talk about carbohydrates, and I'm not dismissing the fact that there are proteins that are vegetable in nature, but I kind of look at those more as carbohydrates. Uh, and say whether it's legumes and unless it's nuts and seeds, I'm kind of looking those more as facts. And then, so there is a place for all of those. I do have a vegetarian and vegan chapter in my book. I'm not opposed to those kinds of diets at all. Um, I always say that, you know, the best path, uh, there's many paths to the same destination. The best diet is the one you'll follow. You know, compliance is the science. And so 
I usually ask my client, you know, how many times a day do you like to eat? Uh, when do you like to eat? What are your favorite foods? I give them a, a food scale and have a measure, you know, a, a variety of different foods as to which they prefer. Mm -hmm. uh, I try and keep those in their diets and just use them strategically. Um, so those are all things that are really important. I don't mean to veer off into to specific camps, whether it's carnivore, paleo, vegan, you know, whatever. Yeah. I'm just saying that that all of those things work and they all work for the same reason is trying to lose weight. It's just even create a calorie deficit and comply with that, whether yeah. it's keto or intermittent fasting or any of the named diets. Um, so in, in micronutrients, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, I was kind of off the carbohydrates and micronutrients. I kind of blended those together here because I want them to be potassium rich uh, first and foremost. So I always throw a potato and some fruit and yogurt into the diet, trying to satisfy because it's kind of people generally trying to under eat potassium Mm -hmm. uh, in their diet. And, uh, obviously iron's another big one. Um, I, I do like to see some red meat in the diet for that, particularly for women. Um, you know, women and, and athletes, female athletes who train or even, uh, adolescents, teenagers. Uh, I work with a lot of, I working with currently working with the U S Olympic women's wrestling team. And one of the concerns, which I learned way back in the early nineties with the track runners from the university of Oregon, especially the distance runners, is the female triad. They would chronic uh, calorie restriction, amenorrhea, uh, you know, osteoporosis, and then anemia are always some of the things that you're mostly concerned about. And you try and satisfy all those concerns with sufficient calories. And then after that, adequate calcium, huge fan of dairy for that, yogurt for those people who have a hard time with lactose. Uh, and then adequate iron, as mentioned, with red meat is usually in all my women's diets. Lean red meat I hate when people categorize red meat in a in a yes. certain way just because, you know, a, a ribeye has higher saturated fat than a top sirloin steak. You can't paint with a broad brush. And and some of the same people that would categorize red meat as being high in saturated fat would make the distinction between a Greek yogurt and butter. <laughs> yeah. Which are which are both dairy, but one is can raise cardiovascular disease risk, butter, saturated fat, LDL elevation. And one does not, one's cardioprotective, yeah. you know, Greek yogurt. And so I'm, some people would look at my recommendations and then I think misconstrue lean meat with hot dog, a fast food burger, which is a 75-25 beef, which has the constitution of a hot dog, as opposed yeah. to say a 96-4 beef or a, uh, you know, a top sirloin steak. Uh, and then again, understanding that's only one portion. That's only one protein source out of many that contribute to your daily protein intake. So I, I think I covered most of it there in terms of calories, protein, macronutrients. I mentioned a little bit about saturated fats. If you choose to go a keto diet, then you still want to keep those saturated fats under 10% and do a lot of olive oil and fatty fish and avocado and nuts and seeds should you decide to go low carb. It's not my preference. I, you know, Again, if it helps people comply and that seems the least restrictive to them and they're, they're the most satiated on that diet, um, I just wonder if... I just don't see the long-term statistics suggesting that adherence is very good. And that, that's kind of another reason why I'm not a huge fan of the vegan or vegetarian. Well, vegetarian is a little different because you can, you could be lacto-avo, you could have fish in there, pescatarian. But with the vegan diets in particular, yes, you could get sufficient protein, particularly if you supplement the soys and the, the pea proteins. You can get sufficient micronutrients, particularly if you supplement the B12 and the iron and the omega-3s. But I just don't see compliance. I don't see adherence long-term yeah. to be that very good. 
And I guess you could say this about any diet, just like I said, you could do the keto diet wrong. You can, it, a lot of people tend to do the vegan diet wrong. Yeah. Uh, they use a lot of ultra processed foods that don't have any animal sources, but they don't, aren't necessarily very micronutrient rich. And not too many of them are overeating. You don't, you don't often see the same weight problems with vegan. That's a good thing. I mentioned on Tom Bilyeu's podcast that 95% of health benefits are realized simply from weight loss itself, irrespective of diet. And I specifically referenced the McDonald's diet as proof of that, as we know from the 7-Eleven diet and the Twinkie diet. But of course, they cut off the portion where I said I would never recommend a McDonald's diet. Yeah. Uh, and people just absolutely lost their shit. They, they, you know, saying that, you know, we're going to get cancer and all other stuff from McDonald's. But the point being is that, as we said, calories are king. And if, if you can maintain a calorie deficit, you're respective of, of the diet, at least in the short term, you can see improvements in blood pressure, blood sugar cholesterol, you know, all the biomarkers that necessarily measure your health. And of course, long-term, we'd like to see a lot of other things addressed in terms of sustainability and fiber and adequate micronutrients. That's of course, ultimately where we'd like to get people, but it's baby steps really. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking, and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. Yeah, um, I was about to say, I, I love that you brought up the topic of saturated fat. I wanna touch on that in a second here, but I, I really love that you mentioned that most of health benefits are realized just from weight loss, right? I've made videos on that as well, and people are like, how can you say that? I made things like saying like, how much you eat is more important than what you eat. And that's such a hard concept for people to grasp because then it also comes down to like what you eat influences how much you eat. Yes, satiety. Much, yes, exactly. But how much you eat is the main driver of health, right? Especially if somebody's overweight. And I, I love that you brought, well, before we talk about the saturated fat intake, I'd love for you to touch on one more small topic here, which is for athletes in particular, what are some of your favorite micronutrient sources, vegetables specifically, and why those? I know you talked some about like- Yeah, I mentioned when I got under micronutrients. Yeah, when I got under micronutrients, I, I talked about some of the big ones. Uh, sodium can be important, especially for athletes who sweat. I've worked closely with Dr. Sandra Godick from the Heat Institute. She's a PhD in thermoregulation, hydration. She does the sweat testing for- a lot of the NFL teams and hockey. Teams. And so I've spoken about the fact that when you're replacing sweat, you need to get some salt and some glycogen and glucose in that water, both to help with absorption, but also to help replace what you lost. The distinction that she makes is that before and during training, you probably need to keep the sodium at about one to 2% 
and the glucose is probably under 3%. And so if you're taking in a liter of water, 1,000 milligrams of water uh, or milliliters of water, you want to get about 100 to 200 milligrams of sodium, mm -hmm. uh, which is only like less than half of one of those uh, liquid IVs or less than a quarter of an LMNT. Yeah. Now, this is for, for throughout the day as you get thirsty or pre and post training or pre and intra training. Even when it's a, an, you know, an endurance event, if you're out there for two hours playing football, you don't want to drink back just water. You want to drink about a 1%, one, per, one to 2% sodium solution with about a 3% glucose solution. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily want to go higher than 3% glucose because it'll trigger the kidneys to release water and you'll start urinating. And, uh, mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of the measurement. And then post-workout, you want to replace what you lost, and that can be at a, a much higher concentration. Uh, so you weigh in before and after training and you lose, generally speaking, you lose about two, two grams of sodium an hour. Yeah. Uh, and some people who are salty sweaters can lose up to five. Lane Johnson loses five grams of sodium an hour. They measured that with a sweat test. And so he obviously has to utilize uh, more salt post-workout. Plus he has to salt his meals throughout the day, heavier than what a, a typical athlete would. And he trains twice a day and you just can't replace all of that with drinking. You've got to get some in the food. Mm -hmm. um, and so post-workout, Maybe you'd be at a at a higher solution. Maybe you'd be at, I mean, Dr. Sander Godek's got a Levelin product that goes from 900 to 1,500 milligrams of sodium per liter. So it's pretty substantial. And then also the glucose would be higher, maybe 9% uh, post-workout. And so that's kind of, that's a brief summary. A lot of the medical community took my recommendations and suggested that they were not healthy. Yeah. Uh, they aren't recommendations for sedentary, overweight hypertensive individuals. Some people are salt sensitive. Uh, these are recommendations for active individuals. And in my videos, I talk about the fact that I'm a large athlete. I sweat a lot. I live in Las Vegas. You know, I, yeah. I need more sodium. It was interesting as some years later, I saw a video that, that Lane Norton had put out. Some of his athletes need 10 grams of sodium a day. And I found the same thing. That's not to say everybody does. And there's also reverse salt sensitive. And there's hypo, uh, uh, what is it when you have, um, uh, uh, hyponatremia no when you when you stand up from a seated position and you yes start to, yes uh i can't remember the particular name now but lightheaded yeah. from low blood pressure yep and i saw this you know 25 years ago when i was training middle-aged especially women in particular who were kind of on, maybe on a dash diet they'd get up from a leg press and get dizzy and have to hold on to something yeah they would orthostatic hypotension yes, is what yes. That is. so as you move from a seated to a standing position some people, if they don't have sufficient blood pressure, they'll get dizzy. Yeah. And so, and that's not a lot of people, but it, it's, it's some, and then some people have reverse salt sensitivity, maybe five to 15% of this population who, if they get too low in sodium, their blood pressure elevates. So it, it's a broad topic. And I, I spend yeah. a little time emphasizing it because I've taken a lot of heat over the years from the medical community yeah. who've, who have misconstrued my recommendations for their cardiovascular yeah. Patient. <laughs> Nonetheless, salt is huge. Iodine is also big, especially people who sweat a lot and are restricting a lot of foods and getting sufficient iodine. I put cranberry juice in the diet, but just iodized salt uh, rather than pink salt. Some people have switched to pink salts thinking that the minerals are, yeah. are of some benefit and they really aren't significant enough in quantity to provide you a physiological benefit. Get those from food. But I do focus on getting sufficient iodine and not mega dosing, but uh, 125 micrograms a day. It's the RDA. And I, I like to see that closer to 500, probably not over a, a gram or a milligram. I'm sorry, because it's a microgram is how that's measured. Yeah. So I do get iodine. And then the next on that list is going to be potassium. 
yeah. and a potato fruit yogurt. I think before I started blathering on about salt, the question really was about potentially low FODMAP. Uh, and I have talked a lot about low FODMAP. And for a specific group of people, I, it's been my experience because I work with a lot of people in the fitness industry, either guys who are bulking and they end up with a lot of digestion problems because they're eating a lot of pizza, pasta, pancakes. There's lots of bread. And if they're taking in oatmeal, it's huge quantities. And it's just a little harder to digest in massive quantities. And so I started transitioning them to more white rice just because it was easier to consume more of. It would digest faster and you could be hungry again sooner, which is their challenge, right? Exactly the opposite of what we've been talking about up yeah. to this point. Uh, and so I try and get them a foundation of the fruit or the fruit juice in their case, because the a little easier to digest for weight gainers and then move on to white rice. But for weight loss people, I've also found amongst the bodybuilding figure, physique, bikini, wellness, <laughs> it just keeps going and going, industry, um, uh, that a lot of these people would would get diets from guru uh, nutritionists and they would be force feeding tons and tons of really gaseous or undercooked, maybe raw broccoli and, and the like. And they would end up with severe gastric distress yeah maybe even to the point of IBS, such that it's painful. And I understand that the, that's not a, IBS is a symptom diagnosis. It's not necessarily yeah. something you have or you don't have. Uh, it's kind of based on what you consume and how you feel. And it's not for everyone. It's individualistic. It's dose dependence. You know, how the foods are prepared matters. And uh, it's cumulative in nature. Sometimes you can handle a certain portion for breakfast, but by lunch or the next day, if you've continued to eat that, you kind of spill over in your body's capacity to, to digest and absorb it, and you end up with a significant amount of gas and bloating. So I do recommend that people are aware of, particularly if you have IBS, of FODMAP diet, because it's largely beneficial. I think 50 to 70% of people who utilize low FODMAP diet experience a significant relief in symptoms. It's science-based, the Monash University out of Australia, and largely accepted by gastroenterologists as a as a uh, we call it a elimination diet, probably yeah. the one they would go to initially in, in cases, in severe cases. But I'll choose from the, that menu, being low, choosing foods off the low FODMAP diet does not mean you're on a, a low FODMAP diet. It, is, it means you understand that, that some foods are going to be cause more gas and bloating than others and how they're prepared and the volume of them that you eat. And some people might be able to handle a small serving of sweet potato, for instance. And that they can't figure out why, you know, if they eat a lot of it, they get into jet or they have severe gas and bloating or constipation. IBS can be either or, diarrhea yeah. or constipation. It's not specific. And it can move back and forth. The same individual can have a variety of symptoms. And so I, I try and get them to be aware of that and look and see, oh, I see that, that sweet potato is up to, I think it's about a quarter cup or something or a half cup. I, I don't know exactly the specifics, but it actually starts to look at specific foods and their quantity that are most well tolerated. I'm cautious again, not to suggest that that's something that somebody should be on in its extreme for an extended period of time, but it you might be aware that mounds of raw broccoli before a bikini competition is probably contributing to some of your digestive problems yeah. and the bloating and the especially where women don't want it in the large intestine, you know, down the lower abdominal abdominal yeah. region. And especially as you get closer to competition, you want that area yeah. to be flat. It's going to be largely determined upon the foods that you eat and the amount of the gas, the methane that is produced by trying to digest those foods. 
Yeah, man, that's a fantastic explanation. I'm thankful enough that I don't have any food sensitivities. Like I can pretty much eat anything and I'm fine, thankfully. A lot of my clients do. And that's where I start with uh, looking at the diet as well, FODMAPs, right? Because a good amount of people do have sensitivities to them. And I think you mentioned it perfectly. It perhaps becomes more of a concern for competitive athletes, right? Trying to get on stage and look a certain way, or perhaps even for people who are trying to eat sufficiently. I know personally, if I'm eating a ton of broccoli and those types of veggies, they are very satiating as well. So it's really hard to eat a ton of food, right? I want to take a second back and talk about the the sodium thing because it's so important to discern between recommendations for the general public and athletes. It's not the same thing, right? And even looking at the sports science literature, when it looks at uh, like electrolyte supplementation, hydration supplements, like half the studies show a benefit, half the studies show no benefit. And it, it comes down so much to the modality of the exercise, the intensity and the population being used too, right? Because you can't compare a 250 pound bodybuilder to a 150 pound skinny person who's just starting to exercise the amount of sodium being lost sweat intensity all of those variables play a role right and so even anecdotally um i think it was in one of your 10 minute talks this was back before i was even in graduate school so i didn't really even like know anything <laughs> i still don't know anything but i was watching one of your videos and you were talking about sodium and i was like i'm gonna give this a try because i'm one of the people who get hypotension orthostatic hypotension sorry because i would always get lightheaded when i trained always and I always had really bad muscle cramps as well. And I train early-ish, probably two hours after waking. And now I drink 16 to 20 ounces of water with some salt alongside my breakfast, which has some fruit. So I'm getting carbs there. And my uh, the dizziness has completely gone away. I like don't experience it at all, which makes my workout quality substantially better because my uh, ability to work for a prolonged period of time is significantly better because I would get through half my workout, feel dizzy and continue the workout, but the performance isn't there the same way. And every time I would finish my, my workout and shower, I would cramp up like crazy. That's gone away substantially. So it is incredibly beneficial for those outcomes. No doubt. Yeah. That was my experience as well. And I would just caution that how bodybuilders are. If a little is good, a lot is better. It's, yeah. it's not a it's not a more is better scenario. Yeah. My own training partner, when I came out with that video, downed a, a ton of salt before the workout and called in and said he wasn't going to be there because, for lack of a better description, you you, you end up pissing it out your ass. You yeah. will get diarrhea from taking yeah, yeah. too much salt. So yeah. uh, those are lessons that we learned. But, yeah. uh, I experienced the same thing. I had cramping. I had some dizziness on standing. I saw that in some clients. I saw that in some great athletes. I, I most famously kind of talked about when I cramped up so bad after squats in a powerlifting meet that I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital. And uh, uh, Jesse Burdick and Mark Bell came and fed me an entire tube of Nun tablets and uh, <laughs> drank those down. And uh, I mean, I couldn't even walk. My hamstrings and quads were so cramped up. It kind of started as a forearm cramp and I couldn't yeah. release the bar when I was warming up for bench press. And of course, the local chiropractic guy came over and started massaging it. And <laughs> like, that's, it's not the problem. <laughs> you know, it's, it's electrolyte deficiency yeah. at that point. And, and it was a hot day. It was well over 90 degrees in Sacramento. And I was wearing a, a beanie and I was sweating like crazy. I don't know. All the things that I, I did to compound the problem. I drank too much um, uh, Medialyte or something. It was just really high in sugar. 
mm-hmm. after weigh-ins and it caused me to start peeing every five minutes. So I felt like I was running to the bathroom and peeing. I was actually dehydrating myself, uh, which is why I mentioned that you don't want to do too high a sugar for rehydration protocols. Yes. And we designed these for UFC athletes specifically for retention, not, you know, yeah. uh, be cautious about how much they're urinating. But I experienced the same thing. And then some years later, I was helping Larry Wheels at a meet and he experienced the same problem. He started cramping. And so we, we loaded him with NIM tablets and salt. And within 20, 30 minutes, you know, he felt fantastic. I had the same experience. I actually set a world record that day and he set a world record that day, some years apart. But you start seeing things like this and yeah. it can be easy, I think, to overemphasize the meaningfulness for uh, too many people. As you said, I have to be cautious. That's why I'm, I'm I'm sitting here, you know, trying to provide an appropriate amount of nuance yeah. to to the whole conversation. It's difficult because in in today's industry, with the little sound bites and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then misapplied to the wrong population, it can it, it definitely uh, makes it so it's an individualistic experience. And you, you know, were able to to use that information to perform better, and I think that's what's important. Yeah, it's helped a ton. I also wanted to touch uh, quickly on the saturated fat intake thing because I remember a while back when I made some posts about the vertical diet and why I was supportive of it and people immediately, the the number one thing I think people attacked was the saturated fat component, right? Uh, And again, I think it's important to think of things as a hierarchy of importance as well because one, you don't need to eat zero saturated fat, right? You ideally want to limit it, but Sure, saturated fat is associated with increases in LDL cholesterol, cardiovascular risk factor, et cetera. But I think it's also important to put things into context. Like you mentioned, again, body weight is the number one thing for people who are overweight, right? And just losing weight and being of a, a, a healthy body composition is going to significantly outweigh perhaps the detrimental effects of eating a little bit more saturated fat than perhaps you quote unquote should. And then it comes down to red meat sources. Like you mentioned, there are leaner red meats than others. And if you focus on those leaner red meats, they're not that high in saturated fat, right? And then furthermore, we're talking about whole foods here, right? And if we look at the research, it really does show that people who eat more whole foods have better body weight regulation and health outcomes. So you have to weigh the pros and cons of these things. On top of that, you recommend eating a ton of fruits and veggies. There's also really good cross-sectional data showing that even amongst people that have really high meat consumption, if they have simultaneously really high fruit and vegetable consumption, they actually have improved outcomes of cardiovascular disease, cancer, et cetera, right? So when people just attach themselves to like one nutrient, and I understand why, but if, if you watch my videos all the time, I talk about, we can't talk about one nutrient outside of the context of the entire diet. Right, Because if your diet stayed exactly the same and you increase saturated fat intake, sure, you are theoretically increasing your risk for cardiovascular disease. But typically, there are dietary modifications there, right? You're changing things up. And I'd say if you're going from like a highly processed diet to a more whole food-based diet, even if you slightly increase your saturated fat intake, but you're eating more fruits and veggies, you're losing weight, you're being healthy, those things probably outweigh any quote-unquote negative effects of eating a little bit of saturated fat. And I just really want to touch on that because I think that is so important to talk about and people like yeah. miss that point. Now, this is one area that I've had to, uh, I think, explain uh, because I initially when I talked about, um, well, let's just say my recommendations have always been to eat probably less than 30% of total calories as fat. 
because I wanted to have 30 plus percent protein and I wanted to have sufficient carbs to fuel the workout. And I said that, you know, if you could get that down to even 20%, uh, I think even when bulking, I kind of like to have less fat when I'm bulking. Yes. I want more carbs. They're less, you know, fat's more easily stored as fat. Carbs are more easily utilized as glycogen. And when I'm bulking, I'm usually training uh, with a decent amount of volume, if not twice a day, you know, be quads in the morning, hamstrings at night, kind of like a 35 minute AM workout and a 25 minute PM workout. That's the way I trained with Flex Wheeler. And that gets you to the extremes of say bodybuilding and and what might eke out that last little percentage of hypertrophy. Yeah. So I've always suggested that that proteins or that fats should be below 30% of total calories. And for some people as low as 20%. I don't like to go below that because of an effect on hormones and sleep, et cetera. You might be able to get to 15 for a short period of time, but uh, once your body fat gets down to a particular percentage, you're, you're going to start experiencing some, some problems with libido and sleep, et cetera. And of that 30% fat, I want to use a variety of sources and some, and again, top sirloin steak has always been my go-to, never ribeyes. Uh, and not that ribeyes are bad. If, like you say, if the, the, the total dietary pattern allows for it and you can still keep under 10% saturated fat mm -hmm. uh, as a percentage of total calories. So you look at a top sirloin and only about a third of the fat in a top sirloin steak is saturated fat. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, it's 30% times 30%, you're at 9%. Mm -hmm. You're below the American Heart Association's recommendation. And that's only if you were eating top sirloin all day. And yeah. I've got fat-free Greek yogurts. I've got, uh, you know, fatty fish. I've got uh, eggs. Uh, I think there was a concern there for a long time that eggs would contribute to elevated LDL. And we're seeing that for the vast majority of the population, uh, Tom Dayspring talks about this quite a bit, that it's a sterified cholesterol and it does not uh, raise LDL in most people. There are yeah. hypercholesterolemia uh, folks who have a genetic predisposition. I thought it was great when Lane came out recently and said that even with a low saturated fat diet and over 60 grams of fiber a day, he couldn't get his LDL below 130. And so he started a, a statin intervention, or maybe it was an azetamide uh, I'm not sure if it was a dual therapy. I don't know the specifics, but yeah. uh, nonetheless, even with a low saturated fat, high fiber diet, some people are going to have a, yeah. a predisposition for elevated LDL that might need medical intervention. And I do recommend and have recommended for 15 years that people get blood tests to look at those numbers yeah. and, you know, and then adjust their diet accordingly to try and fix um, because LDL should be under hundred or probably more APOB. I, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole as to what's, you know, obviously the best marker. APOB is the preferential yeah. marker for, and you kind of want to get that below 70 or 60, depending on your total risk. So uh, you're right. Having said that, I also had seen some of the research on eggs and saturated fat consumption. I think Menno Henselman was one who talked a lot about the potential benefits for performance and the problem was, and we've seen this now with Alan Flanagan's done a great job of bringing forth a lot of the research and the fact that people in the low carb community, whether it was Gary Taubes or Nina Teichholz, they would start to cherry pick certain portions of the S curve, what we call a sigmoidal curve, where if you measured populations who, who ate, say, between 4% and 10% or maybe even 12% saturated fat, you wouldn't see any difference in cardiovascular disease risk. And by the same token, if you measured people with, you know, 18 or 20% saturated fat intake all the way up to 30% saturated fat intake, you wouldn't see much of a cardiovascular disease risk difference between those isolated portions yeah. of people. 
but you get between say 10 and 12 and 18 and 20, and you see this dramatic increase in risk. And, you know, I, I've certainly read all of those books. I think it was the lean mass hyper responders for a while. There was the big thing with who was the engineer. His name escapes me at this time, but I went down all those rabbit holes, the Weston A. Price rabbit hole and started to be in a, I don't necessarily know I was a, an LDL denialist or a saturated fat denialist, but since my recommendations were in that range and I didn't see any evidence uh, yeah, you know, and I certainly wasn't recommending 20 plus percent saturated fat then, but at the same time, I would not recommend the ribeyes or the butter in massive quantities. You know, yeah. I do have butter in my diet. I probably use less, a lot less now. And I recommend a lot less for individuals who have any challenges with LDL, but overall, I think that when the book came out and vertical diet 2.0 and 3.0, they started moving more and more towards a reduction in uh, total saturated fats mm -hmm. and an increase in soluble fiber in particular, uh, you know, for those people who have, especially for those people who have a predisposition for hypercholesterolemia or elevated LDL. I kind of hope that covers all the topics I wanted to hit on yeah. that. <laughs> Provides no, enough nuance. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic explanation, man. And honestly, one of the reasons why I've admired you so much for so long is because you're one of the people who is willing to admit and change their point of view when they've gotten something wrong. We've all have, right? Like I've done that a number of times. And then usually when I, cause people ask me like, how do you know who's a good source of information? Cause somebody who doesn't have any nutritional background, it's, it's pretty tough to know like what's good and what's bad information. Right. And like the number one red flag I usually tell people to look out for is like, people who don't admit they're ever wrong. <laughs> they're probably wrong, right? Because we yeah. all make mistakes. And I think actually admitting those mistakes and and expressing what your thought process is behind your change in, in views is really powerful and actually builds trust amongst your, your community, right? Um, one of the things that I really love about you too, Stan, is you're saying compliance is the science, right? Because although you've developed the vertical diet, you recognize that perhaps it's not the best strategy for everybody and different people have different lifestyles and, and different dietary preferences. Um, one of the things that I really work on with my clients for that reason is what Lane, I guess, coined the flexible dieting approach, right? Yeah. And that's really being able to improve your health while still enjoying things that you like to eat. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. As long as you account for total energy balance, and of course, it's a balance here, and people ask me, well, how many of these foods can I eat? And it's such a hard answer to question because it's all context-specific, but how do you yeah. 
I guess if you were to give people recommendations in terms of how to incorporate some of the core principles of the vertical diet with perhaps a flexible dieting approach as well, where they can still enjoy some foods they eat, take into account their dietary preferences. Yeah. I just a quick note on the flexible dieting approach. You know, Lane was, was uh, I think Lane and Alan Argon both uh, had been pinned as the, as promoting, if it fits your macros. Yeah. And people conflated that with what were they using? Protein powders and pop tarts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and it was never Lane's intention. It was, yeah. it was, you know, to go over all the nuance that we've already discussed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mentioned that I send my clients a questionnaire, a detailed questionnaire, and I, I have them rank foods, of course, their personal preference. And then in terms of compliance, I just try and work on kind of an 80, 20 rule. I guess you would, I, I don't ask them to eliminate all the foods that they enjoy. Yeah. I do ask them to get a lot of those high calorie dense, ultra processed, palatable foods out of the house. Yes. Just create a barrier of entry so, so that you may have to get in the car and go get them if you want them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also importantly, this kind of gets into my satiety. Uh, I have a whole chapter on satiety or a whole section where I go down all the things that contribute. The number one reason people fail on diets is simply hunger. Yeah. You know, they get hungry and tired. And so that's what I'm focused on first and foremost. And so we utilize, you know, obviously the major tools in our toolkit there, raise your protein, increase your fiber, eat on a schedule, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> maybe drinking more fluids with meals. If they sit down and have a large iced tea here, a diet soda or whatever, if they don't like water, uh, you know, just to help fill and expand the stomach so that when the rugae are expanded, it can send the signal for satiety to the brain to take a little, to slow down your eating because there seems to yeah. be a window of 15, 20 minutes at which you start to get a satiety signal. Seems that step count, six, 8,000 steps a day contributes to satiety, getting better sleep, you know, utilizing a CPAP if you have apnea, the kinds of things that contribute to ghrelin release for lack of sleep. And just even being awake more hours in a day just gives you more opportunity to get hungry again. Yeah. Those kinds of things. So those are all satiety things. I really love meal prepping. Uh, you know, I started a meal prep company because I've, for 30 years, I've been carrying around Tupperwares and uh, and so, uh, and it, it's a very successful behavior is to prep your meals ahead of time, whether you use a service or do it yourself. I've talked about how something as simple as that little thermos, that little 24 ounce thermos I got off of Amazon has been life-changing for me because I used to travel around with cold Tupperwares running around airports looking, trying to pay the guy at Starbucks to heat it up for me. And now I've got, you know, a hot thermos. And as I travel, I can take all my meals yeah. with me or uh, if I leave for an extended period of time, I'm putting frozen meals into my bag or into a rolling Coleman cooler and checking it on the plane. And, uh, you know, when I fly out of the country, I'll take all my meals with me. And that's what I recommend that my athletes do, the professional athletes, the Olympic athletes that I work yeah. with. They, they travel internationally a lot. And I'm like, you should be packing 30 meals into a rolling cooler and yeah. uh, checking it on the plane and stay at an Airbnb or a place with a microwave and fridge. And because uh, if you're eating the local food, there's a pretty good chance you're going to end up with some digestion problems, if not worse, and diarrhea and weight loss, and it'll impact your performance. So those are all, uh, compliance is the big thing. And I, I got to be honest with you, and you, no conversation about satiety can be had these days without mentioning semaglutide. Yeah. I've got chronic dieters who just haven't been able to keep the weight off and they roller coaster, yeah. and it just comes down to appetite. They're just yeah. they're overeating and that's not to blame them. Yeah. Uh, it's just to identify that they're not going to be able to manage a lot. Most, I say most, it is most. I mean, the vast majority of people within three years will regain the weight, if not more. Yeah. 
Uh, I know every time we try to put a percentage on it, people squawk about what studies we have yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to pinpoint that. But we know it's anywhere from 50 to 90 percent, depending on how long, whether it's yeah. one year or three years. And it's just due to those hunger cues. And we also know that kind of the genetic component of obesity is really tied to hunger cues. Some people have just more leptin resistance or ghrelin release and, than others. And they're just hungrier. And, and, it, yeah. and I think we've we've seen lately that uh, some of the research suggests it's not even BMR. It's not even the idea that some people just have a, a slower metabolism than others. That's actually yeah. pretty rare. And even thyroid, if it's not an extreme thyroid deficiency, is probably a relatively insignificant number of calories. Yeah. And even adding more muscle <laughs> when inactive is probably not... I hate to say this, but it would have to be a significant amount of muscle and yeah. you'd have to move it in order to get a meaningful additional calorie burn benefit. Certainly at rest, it wouldn't be yeah. something that would, it's the eating. It, it, yeah. You know, I just keep circling back to the same thing. We're just over consuming. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, some glutide is an extraordinarily effective appetite suppressant, not to say that it's, it's, um, uh, you know, there, there's absolutely no downside to that. Yeah. Some people get indigestion from the slow gastric motility and some people, you know, just aren't consuming enough protein or lifting weights and they might lose yeah. muscle tissue, uh, as would happen in most diets. Anyhow, I don't know yet that it's proven to be in any greater degree. I guess it would depend on the pace of weight loss, but would it be compared to a similar pace of weight loss in the absence of similar glutide? That that's the current debate that's going on. Is, yeah, Doctor Nadolsky does a great job talking about that. There, it doesn't seem to be a greater lot of muscle mass whatsoever with a comparable rate of weight loss if there is no resistance training, right? Because that was right. one of the big, uh, I guess, like points against this the use of semaglutide. It's like, well, there's a ton of of loss of muscle mass. Like, yeah, that that's going to happen with any diet if you lose weight quickly. Um, yeah, you know. Why I was asking about in terms of people including the foods they like is because I often realize with a lot of clients, one of the issues that people have with adherence as well is the fact that they're, they try to be overly restrictive in terms yeah. of the foods that they allow themselves to eat. Um, and, you know, hunger is obviously a variable, but oftentimes people just really like something and try to completely eliminate it from their diet altogether. And something I do with a lot of my clients that find themselves in that situation, and this is not novel by any means, but they're like mind blown when I bring this up is how about you intentionally have that food every day, just a small amount of it, yeah. right? There you go. Portion for, control. Yeah, exactly. And for some people, I, I understand that's difficult to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do think it's also important to just like be willing to try and understand that you may mess up and be willing to try again because it takes time to to ingrain these behaviors but oftentimes when they do that on purpose you realize you don't crave that food nearly as much because it's Great. the idea that you can't have it that you want it more right and when you simply just allow right. yourself to have a little bit of it every day and you're still focusing on all of these uh, nutritional recommendations that we've given in terms of regulating hunger and satiety it really creates the perfect environment for adherence right because i've also found myself two on the other side where it's like, well, if you really want to succeed with this weight loss thing, you focus on just these foods, only these whole foods don't have those things. And then it's people still struggle with the adherence components. Like, well, if you include a little bit of these, sure, on paper, the diet isn't as healthy as it could be. 
But if we talk about the fact that it helps you stick to your plan against compliance as a science, you're going to have much more uh, long-term success with that, right? Um, yeah, and I don't know that it's any less healthy. It, it, yeah, yeah, exactly, not, exactly. It's just yeah. not measurable. It's it's yeah. too insignificant to care. That only if it were at the sacrifice uh, of a nutrient that you were deficient in, mm-hmm. uh, in which case, you know, you would want to get that from food first. You had mentioned about over restriction, and I have a slide in my. A lot of the information that people get on the vertical diet is from. Uh, the seminar I did in Iceland some six years ago, it's got over almost 7 million views, I think. Awesome. It was the most comprehensive, over two hours I talked from detail, front to back of all the things I thought were most important. And uh, I put up a slide, kind of a guru diet compared to the vertical diet. And the, the people are familiar with the fact that you go into a nutrition coach or a bodybuilding coach, and the guru diet is going to be boneless, skinless chicken breast, white fish, tilapia, broccoli, maybe a tablespoon of peanut butter, some quinoa. Certainly not anything that's enjoyable or sustainable. And, you know, I argued that it was also going to be deficient in adequate nutrients that we've all discussed, the iron and the iodine, all those kinds of things. And so I always intended the vertical diet to be more inclusive mm-hmm. uh, than, and, and, but as soon as I mentioned FODMAPs, of course, I had some blowback from folks who suggested that was an elimination diet. And, yeah. and so I had to further clarify for whom and under what circumstances, but uh, as we've discussed, but uh, that was always my goal was that I thought that when, and I did made the same mistake. That's the thing is a lot of this comes from my experience. And I kind of learned later, uh, you know, obviously competing for 30 years, I've, I've made all these mistakes multiple times. Uh, you know, how many times do you have to, I've been doing the keto diet off and on for 30 years. It's nothing new to me. Mm-hmm. And, and every time I did it, <laughs> I would lose a significant amount of muscle mass and strength and size and, I was exhausted and, uh, you know, every single time. And so I, I, if I want to put this into a bro science uh, uh, response here, you said something beginning the conversation I thought was really important, that lifting weights is immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. I measured everything from the time I was a teenager lifting weights as to my performance in the gym. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't stronger or if I couldn't do more reps at a particular weight, then I wasn't getting better. It's immediate feedback. And something I did in the previous 72 hours, notwithstanding, you know, overreaching for a three-month period of of linear progression, (laughs) which is not most people's problem. Most people's problem is is that within the last 72 hours, you did something to compromise your performance. You had a, a poor night of sleep. You were inadequately hydrated or you missed a meal or you were stressed out and you came to the gym and you couldn't lift as much weight as you lifted last time. Yeah. Uh, And that's how I measured it. And I I think I always said there's a great philosopher once that said that that, uh, weakness is never a strength. And I said, well, actually, that's Mark Bell. (laughs) But even a broken clock can be right twice a day. And strength is Uh, never a weakness. Strength is never a weakness. And weakness is never a strength. And anytime my performance declined, and, and it was because it's so measurable and it's so immediate yes. that, that that is why I like focusing on strength for my clients, whether it's athletes or gen pop is because they can immediately see, Hey, one of the reasons why I like to weigh in every day, even though we understand yes. it should be the average for the week. And there's some fluctuations, especially with women, especially, you know, with water retention throughout the month, because it, it holds you accountable. Yes. All of my clients have to send me their morning weight their hours of sleep, and a picture of each meal. 
that's that's how I, it, it's not for my benefit. It's for theirs. Yeah, it's 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 some sort of, you know, that's which gets measured, gets improved. And when you track things, you're more likely to maintain compliance. If I check in with somebody weekly, they might have gone totally off the rails and be seven pounds off. And so yeah. I do make them send me that information. I don't have to respond to it necessarily. And then when I check in at the end of the week, at least I know that they've been monitoring yes. and they can see if there's a decline and you know a gain of weight that's significant. And oftentimes Monday morning, the you know, the scale's high because they had a, a weekend where they, you know, had a couple of drinks, went out to dinner with the family, went out breakfast on Sunday morning. And and that's not a big deal if you get back on the horse mm-hmm. Monday and and you know, but if you aren't measuring and then suddenly you're seven pounds over and then you just throw your hands in the air and this isn't working for me. Why am I even bothering? But I said the same thing with, with weight training. And anytime I got weaker, I would suspect that I was doing something wrong. And so I would, I would remedy to, you know, and I, if I was tracking it, I could look back and see, oh, my hours of sleep. I have a little spreadsheet that I printed out. It's an Excel spreadsheet. I have the days of the month across the top and I have those things along the left-hand column how many 10 minute walks I took, what I weighed, what my hours of sleep was. And then over the course of the month, there's little X's or little numbers. There's my weight. Here's my, I got seven hours. I got seven. I got eight hours. I got four hours. You know, I can quickly glance at that and see whether or not I'm, I'm performing it, whether or not yeah. uh, my performance decrement is, it's almost always something that's right there staring at me in the face. It's not some nuanced thing or some biohack or, you know, something like that. Yeah, man. The feedback you get from tracking is so powerful, right? And I'm like you. I I like looking at these variables. I'm a numbers guy. I know that for everybody, they're not going to track every single little thing every day. But tracking at least some of these main metrics, like your weights, I love tracking steps. I think at least for people who are trying to lose weight, that's incredibly important at least taking some time to learn how to track your calories and all those things is incredibly powerful because you start to learn how these variables influence each other, right? You start to learn how like, hey, even if my calories were the same this week and last week I lost weight, but this week I haven't been that active. My steps have been way lower. My weight's been stable. You start to see the relationship between these things. And I think the most powerful thing that it does is it takes away the second guessing of like what went wrong, right? Because oftentimes people, when they go on a diet and they try to lose weight and they don't really track anything, they're just following, like you mentioned, a guru diet, eating these foods. Sure, it works for some time, but then it stops working. And you and I know why it stops working, even if they're perhaps being adherent to a certain degree. And then people ask themselves, we're like, where did I go wrong? What do I do now? And it's like, you haven't done anything wrong. You just require some modification in these variables, but you can't modify those variables unless you track them. Right. So yeah. I, I tracking is, is definitely one of the most powerful tools and it doesn't have to be calories, just a number of variables that you can really look at that can give you a tremendous amount of powerful feedback to see whether you're not, you're progressing or not in the right direction. Right. I, um, Agreed. I, I want to end off this conversation, uh, by talking about general recommendations And I'm sure yours are very similar to ones that I give for general population individuals who are really focusing on improving their health, right? For most people, it's going to be some weight loss. I think we talked about from nutrition, from a nutritional standpoint, really focusing on regulating hunger and satiety, right? And like you mentioned, protein, fiber, probably number one thing. I think another really important variable there is not being too restrictive with the caloric intake because if you're not eating enough, it doesn't matter if you're putting these strategies in place, you're going to be hungry, right? 
So making sure your deficit is moderate, perhaps protein, fiber, sleep. I'm sure you've come across this. Have you, have you read the Kevin Hall studies where they give people either ultra processed diet or whole foods yeah. diet, and they're pretty much matched for everything, caloric density, protein, fiber, sodium, yeah. micronutrients, and they and, still and, more yeah. <laughs> and ad libitum, they consume 500 more calories a day just from ultra yeah. processed food, 100%. Yeah. And it's yeah. so interesting because people are like, well, you know, it's the fact that ultra processed foods are high in sugar and fat. And like, sure, that is one component, but these foods, and I've said this probably at least 10 times now on this podcast, it's that these foods are engineered to be very tasty. Right. Yep. Even if they're matched for all of these other variables, the mouthfeel, the flavor, the texture, you're just going to like it way more. So you're way more likely to overeat them, even if they're matched for the for the nutritional yep. components. So like just focusing more on whole foods is super helpful. Sleep, hydration, you touched on those. But what are some other um, habits, let's say, or behaviors that people can develop that are really easy, low hanging fruit that are going to have a really great return on investment? Well, you covered first and foremost sleep, and uh, the challenge with that one is, it, is people are always looking again for some sort of hack, melatonin or you know something. What can I take? What you can take is your phone out of your hand and yes. put, it, put it in a different room if possible. I just find that people end up burning the candle at both ends. They'll get to bed a little bit late. They might stay up on their social media feed and then get up early, and it's, it's really... Uh, just at this point, I don't have any secrets except to say just for you to be aware of how important it is to at least give yourself an opportunity to be successful, understanding that you really should get seven plus hours. And then the sleep quality. A lot of people that I work with have apnea and they should get a CPAP. I mean, straight away, whatever it takes, get a CPAP. It's life changing. And I don't say that about a lot of things. I've been in this business a long time. And I don't get excited about too much, but a CPAP is one thing that I've seen that has been life-changing for a lot of people. Uh, so that's, that's the biggest one. And, and people are always complaining, oh, my energy's poor. What can I eat? I'm like, you can sleep better. Is yeah. What you can do. And that's 90% of the time. If you got poor energy, you're not sleeping. Yeah. Or the quality is compromised by some degree of apnea. Yeah. And that would include, as we discussed, I think, before we got on the air here, that if you've got little kids and or pets and they're moving around in the bed and yeah. some of that's unmanageable. You know, every time I do a seminar, talk about the importance of sleep, invariably I'll have a, a, a mom raise her hand that has a, a newborn and I've got a, a nine-year-old, 11-year-old. I lived through it. I get it. I don't get very many Christmas cards from the wives of the professional athletes I train because I tell them to sleep in a different room. Yeah, and that so that doesn't go over very well. But it, especially the last thirty days or in season for somebody whose career is based on their performance, I'm like, man, Lane Johnson has a separate room. I talked to Hoff for about the same thing, and Brian Shaw. There comes a point at which you're you're going to have to prioritize that sleep. And yeah. uh, you know, pets, as I mentioned, could be the same thing. Even though you don't feel as though you woke up, you got pulled out of REM sleep when that animal. You know, they make noise, they move around. Kids are the same way. They make noise. They move around. And maybe you aren't aware of it, but you're breaking up uh, you know, that REM and stage four restorative sleep throughout the evening. And you're just not going to get as quality of sleep. And so, and, and also night shift workers all get police, fire, ambulance, doctors, nurses. They're like, well, what about my shift work? And that's a challenge. And I, yeah. I get it. And you know, I, I, I've often said that I did that, that one rant. I said, why I'm a hypocrite. I talked about the fact that I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a job. I was just competing. I was in both financially and I had the time 
And that's all I did. I trained twice a day. I slept nine hours a night. I napped every afternoon. I ate six times a day. You know, wouldn't it be nice? And that's what, that's when I was the most successful in competition. So I try and move that direction, uh, you know, in terms of optimizing all those things. So again, sleep is huge. I think one of the biggest things that I've been promoting for many, many years, because simply because I hate cardio. (laughs) Same here. Is just... It's just the idea, and I, I don't ever prescribe it for my clients because generally speaking, it's it's not sustainable. It's not terribly effective for weight loss, to be honest with you, other than maybe the satiety benefit. We've looked at the studies, you know, more exercise and more weight loss, and it, it you got the compensation effect where people might end up coming home tired and sitting more and eating more. The 10-minute walk is what I, I can do and have done for over a decade, at least three times a day, for so many different benefits to help my food digest. If I eat and sit, I can feel, especially because I have to eat a lot of food to maintain my muscle mass and my workload. And that in itself, I think it's important just as an aside here, before I get too off off track, people talk about uh, how if they eat carbs, they get tired. The research suggests it's the total calories, Mm -hmm. not necessarily just the carbs. And so if people are overeating and then they get really tired after a meal, they might want to reduce their caloric intake and they'd feel a more sustained energy throughout the day and probably preload the breakfast. We're seeing with the chrononutrition now that you're more insulin sensitive in the morning. And if you preload most of the calories for breakfast, I said this in the Iceland seminar too, six years ago, eat like a king for breakfast, a prince for lunch and a popper for dinner. That's a, a long held, I think, strategy that the industry yeah. has been promoting. Uh, and then we got into this intermittent fasting. People started skipping breakfast and that yeah. isn't necessarily optimal, but uh, that's just an aside. The 10 minute walk is, you know, for, for digestion, for blood sugar control, postprandial glycemia is as mitigated. Effective so as metformin. <laughs> yes. I say twice as effective. I, yeah. Uh, and not to say that, that people shouldn't take metformin if you've got type two diabetes, it's just to say that's an incredibly effective intervention. And even if like you start to get tired midday, if you would just get up and go take a 10 minute walk, it completely recharges your battery. I've got a recumbent bike in the house. I live in Vegas. Sometimes it's 115 degrees outside. My 92-year-old pops lives with me. He's not going out for a walk. He's on a walker, but he can sit on the bike. Or I can get on the bike in an air-conditioned room, and I can do my 10 minutes. And I don't just do a normal spin when I do the bike. I like to spin reasonably a little bit faster under modest tension for 40 or 50 seconds and then rest for 10. And it's not a hit workout. Yeah. But it, it it makes it go a little better. If I can elevate my heart rate just a little bit, my walks are brisk. They're intentional. I do them everywhere, whether I'm traveling and ho- walking around the hotel. If the weather's bad, I'm walking up and down the stairs and down the hallways. Um, at the airports, when I'm picking up my luggage, everybody's standing there staring at the turnstile. I'm walking around. Uh, it, it's kind of laughable because I'm, I, you know, I'm deliberate about it. I'm walking with some intention, you know, uh, but story after story, I could continue to tell you just how important these 10 minute walks are and how, uh, you know, I do 30 minutes of cardio yeah. every single day, you know, and I hate cardio and, yeah. and, 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 you know, so that would probably be one of the huge ones. And I did a video called stress for success. Obviously we talked about sleep we talked about nutrition. We talked about exercise and 10 minute walks, mm-hmm. weightlifting, of course, and then stress management. And I, you know, aside from getting professional help. There are some modalities that people recommend, whether it's, uh, you know, contrast therapy or just uh, like meditation and things like that. I've, in, in my experience, I've just found that, that if I'm really consistent with the sleep and the exercise 
and the nutrition and the 10 minute walks that my stress levels are a lot less. And then over the years, when I've started to, to not be as disciplined with those things, that my stress level seems to go way up and they're hand in hand together. And any of those other modalities is a matter of personal preference, other than I would say seeking counseling if needed. Um, you know, most famously, I mean, Lane's talked a lot about it, uh, Lane Norton, but also Lane Johnson last year. You know, here's a guy who signed, I think, four damn near $50 million contracts in his career and is, I don't think, even arguably one of the best offensive linemen in the history of the sport. Uh, you know, comes forward and says, hey, I'm, I'm taking two games off. I'm, I need to see a, a counselor. I'm having depression. So certainly stress management is going to be a key component to all of that. Yeah, and I think people don't understand how beneficial physical activity is for stress management. So I'm happy you, you touched on that. It's like, man, if you just exhaust your body physically, of course, some people need professional help, like you mentioned. But just yep. exhausting your body physically is so helpful for it's the thing is, all of these variables are related, like we've talked about, right? Because being physically active is likely going to help your sleep quality as well. If you don't exercise at all, which is going to help stress management. All of these things are inter interrelated. And as, as much as I hate the word holistic, it really yeah. is a holistic integrated approach, right? Uh, yeah. the, the 10 minute walks is something I picked up from you. Again, I was watching your videos probably right when I was starting college. I'm, I'm 29 now, so pretty young, but um, this is probably, I don't know, 2010, 2012, around there that time. So I started doing the 10 minute walks too. And that's one of the habits that I've kept up ever since. I still do them now. And, uh, for work productivity too, it's amazing. Like, yeah, I tell my clients to, to, to take 10 minute walks as well, at least two or three per day. And I give them a step goal and I'm like, you could just break this up into 10, 15 minute walks. It's pretty simple. They're like, I don't have time because I have so much work and I understand. And some people it's, it's the truth, but if you, at least for me, I've found that when I take these small breaks and usually I do one in the morning. I'll do one around lunchtime. I'll do one probably at three or four. I'm still working at that time. I purposefully take a break from work to go for a walk, clears my mind. Mm -hmm. It makes me so much more effective and efficient. So I get more work done mm -hmm. in less time, right? Where, where it's like most people who are saying they work in 12 hour days, like some are majority are not, right? <laughs> it's like if you yeah. do these walks, it might actually even help you increase the efficiency of your work. Um, well, I think you know, I mentioned the most important thing about the walks is they're sustainable. Yes, yes, yes. And it takes us back to compliance. I don't know anybody who regularly, I mean, unless they really enjoy their cardiovascular mm -hmm. uh, you know, exercise of choice, whether it's biking or what have you. But the idea, there's so many barriers to entry. You got to come home, you got to change, you got to get in the car, you got to drive to the gym, and then you you know, get on your treadmill for 30 or 40 minutes, which is just nauseatingly boring. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, you know then you got to come home, you got to shower, whatever else. I just, I don't think that it's anything anybody does for an extended period of time. And I think the most important thing about any diet or exercise program is that it becomes part of a lifestyle and not something that you go on and off. Yeah, that's a great point. The barrier to, the barrier to entry is so low. One thing I always do, I record here, I'm sitting at my kitchen island and there's maybe like, I don't know, a 20, uh, 15 foot radius around this thing. I'll take calls with clients and I'll just pace around this in a circle. It probably looks hilarious. And I'm then the I, I have to tell my clients I'm doing that because I'll start talking and I'm out of breath. And I'm like, hey, guys, just so you know, I'm out of breath because I'm pacing around <laughs> my kitchen right now. But yeah, man, it's great because you can just do it anywhere. And that's the thing. Like exercise yeah. doesn't have to mean like put on gym clothes and go outside and sweat. Just, right. just moving your body, right? Um, 
Stan, I want to go ahead and wrap this up, man. I appreciate you so much. Seriously, you've been somebody who I've admired for so long. And I'm so excited that we we got to t- spend some time together here and get to know each other a little bit better. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom and so much knowledge with the people that listen to this podcast. Do you mind sharing where they can find you, where they can find your book, if people want to connect with you further? Yeah. In closing, before that, I wanted to say, you said something, uh, you said, I still don't know anything. And <laughs> that's exactly the way I feel. It's the little Dunning-Kruger system. I used to syndrome. I used to think I knew everything. You know, back when I was in college and thereafter, you know, I, I just thought I knew it all. And now I'm to the point where I just, I just, I just throw my hands in the air, you know, and yeah. I, it's really an honor to be on your podcast and for you to respect the information that I've put out and utilized it. Uh, you're a, a professional, you're a PhD, uh, I think in both nutrition and exercise phys. Just nutrition, uh, but I've taken some ex-phys classes. Yeah. There you go. And you're a part of probably one of the most prominent, respected, recognizable names in this industry, whether it's nutrition or performance, which is Lane Norton's group and Team BioLane. And again, I strive and endeavor to make sure that I'm giving out information. I'm still learning. I'm glad you took me to task on a few things today that, that have evolved or at least explored some of the nuance to my recommendations over the years. But again, an honor uh, to be on with you and to have the information that I'm putting out. Uh, I, I think for your customer base, your clients, they tend to be more educated. I'm an old meathead. <laughs> <laughs> at heart, you know, I'm just a little meathead, a little grinder in the gym, a blue collar lifter who had some success and I'm trying to act responsibly with it. So I appreciate the forum. Everything's at Stan Efforting. StanEfforting.com is my website. On there, you can click to link to my meals, the vertical diet. Uh, I sell Monster Mash nationwide, delivered to the door. And then the YouTube stuff, I talked about a lot of videos on YouTube. The Rhinos Rants are uh, Stan Efforting. Interestingly enough, I haven't done a lot more of them. I've, I've kind of exhausted. I probably have to go back and remake them with the additional nuance that we've discussed because I'm just big on the basics, on what works. Mm-hmm. And some years ago, I was on a podcast and somebody said, Stan just keeps repeating himself. And I took it as a compliment because I'm not interested in going out and making shit up just to, you know, and there's a lot of influencers that do that and they use these mechanisms of action and yeah. some lengthy biochemical explanation to confuse people. And then they take these giant logical leaps into outcomes and try and exaggerate the meaningfulness of whatever intervention they're recommending. I'm pretty boring. I did the same stuff over and over and over again, the stuff that worked, the stuff that worked the best. And that's how I, you know, was able to, to reach the levels that I did in bodybuilding and powerlifting. And in my career, I just keep repeating the same successful behaviors over and over again not constantly being distracted by things that are promising some magical benefit. And then Instagram is at Stan Efforting as well. Yeah, it's unfortunate, man, that there are so many prominent figures that take that route because the thing is that stuff sells, right? So people listen to it a ton. I'm similar to you where I guess my information can get quite boring because I repeat the same stuff over again too. And I try to think of more creative ways of saying the same thing, but there really aren't many. Right. Yeah. And then it, uh, it just comes down to like the fact that like our physiology is not changing day to day. So when there's like groundbreaking biohacks, it's just so silly, man. And it's I got to tell you on that note, I think that Lane and uh, there's a few people like him in the industry. Lane's kind of, I think, been the most prominent and outspoken. And I, I mentioned some years ago, I, I saw how the industry was evolving mm-hmm. and how the the academic professionals, people giving out real good, solid, yes. evidence-based information, the Brad Schoenfelds and 
uh, Brett Contreras and, and Greg Knuckles and the Barbell mm-hmm. Medicine folks. And, you know, there's a whole host of them out there and, uh, with Lane and, and Alan uh, Flanagan and Ellen Oregon. I mean, there's a whole host of really great people out there putting out information. And I thought that things were going to change with social media. And a lot of the stuff that we used to believe is going to get fixed. It actually got a little worse, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, it gave a forum to more and more charlatans. But at the same time, guys like Lane, I put out a, a tweet one time. I said, the vertical diet will not cure cancer or COVID. Please tell Lane Norton so I don't end up on Fuckery Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's something to be said about that because guys like Lane will look at things that other people have said Mm-hmm. expose them for being wrong. And some of those people have started to come around. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give you some specific examples. People like Peter Atia used to hold some beliefs that were contrary, like the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. Yes. Some of, some of his longevity claims. And he's evolved over time from having people like Lane on his show. He's started to find even Joe Rogan, who's notorious mm-hmm. for trafficking in a whole host yeah, of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, of different biohacks. When he has guys like Lane on his show, they evolve. Their thinking evolves. Uh, yes. Huberman, same thing. Dr. Andy Galpin came on, Lane came on. Mm-hmm. And Huberman's starting to gradually recognize that the science. And I, I think that's a good thing that, it is. Uh, that, that Lane continues to call these people out. And a lot of them are very academically accredited individuals, they're just outside of their area of expertise. Yes. And that's, and I like that they reach out to Lane and, and get, uh, you know, can get that information. And so they can start giving good information out to other people. Yeah. yeah it's so important to stay in your lane, man, because even on, it's like, cause everybody thinks they know nutrition. Cause everybody eats. I think it's like the phrase everybody uses. Right. And like, there's a lot of nuance in terms of understanding whether the methodology or not is appropriate for the outcomes that are being looked at, whether the claims that are being made are correct based off of the way the study was conducted. And there's so much nuance there that like, you really do need a graduate level degree to be able to convey this information accurately, right? Because we see even people who have medical degrees and I know why most people default to their medical doctor for advice, but unfortunately, medical doctors don't have an extensive background in nutrition. And not that they have to, it should really be an integrated approach where professionals in different fields work together, right? And like yeah. you mentioned, Lane has done a fantastic job at, uh, of helping steer some of these individuals, perhaps in in the right direction. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that you recognize that. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to do the same. I'm not nearly as funny as Lane is. So <laughs> maybe I can develop a sense of humor in the next coming years. We'll see. <laughs> you're doing a great job thank you brother thank you so much man everybody listening if you enjoyed this episode as always if you could take a second to leave a review and rate the episode and if you're watching on youtube give it a thumbs up it helps me tremendously with the algorithm and subscribe to my channel thank you guys and i'll catch you in next week's video